Morning, if you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Well, it looks like my lectern's gone all wobbly. That's not good. All right, we'll have to worry about that later. I don't think I can fix it and preach at the same time. So, Acts chapter 15 is where we're going to be beginning. This is, as uh, Ryan mentioned, our Q&A morning. Uh, for those who are visiting with us, we're thankful that you're here. We hope that you feel welcome here. We're glad that you've come to see us. Uh, I want to let you know what we do on this second Sunday morning in this time period. We have a Q&A. Q&A is questions that have previously been submitted to me. In fact, this is one that I tried to answer last month, but I ran out of time, this first one. Uh, and they are questions that have been given to me that I've had some time to prepare a response for. Uh, and uh, usually these are questions that I've heard more than once, and so I'm going to try to answer them for the benefit of the group. But it is, it's not something where we go back and forth and you ask questions now. It's instead something where I've received questions uh, in the past. So uh, this morning, we need to finish what we started last month. Remember last month, we answered the question, should Christians keep kosher? The idea of the kosher laws and what it was the food laws of the, uh, the Jewish Old Testament law. And uh, so kind of a secondary question to that was this question in Acts 15, are the rules of Acts 15, 20, and 29 binding on Christians today? So let me give you a little background on Acts 15. Uh, we touched on some of this last month, and so if there are any questions you have, I'd recommend you go back and listen to last month's uh, lesson just because there's some of these things that are going to make more sense in the context of what we've already covered about how the, the dietary laws changed through time, uh, through the, the law of Moses and then uh, in the law of Christ. But in Acts 15, what's happening is there is a question about whether the Gentiles, who are now becoming Christians, whether they have to keep the law of Moses, particularly the, the ordinance in the law of Moses or the thing that attended the law of Moses about circumcision. Circumcision was a part of the Abrahamic covenant that preceded the law of Moses, and that was what all Jews did because Jews were a part of that covenant. And so the question was, do Gentiles have to be circumcised and do Gentiles have to keep the law of Moses? And what happens in Acts 15 is that the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem all gather together to discuss that question. And in response to the question, you've got Paul who speaks and Peter who speaks. And then you have James who speaks here in Acts 15. Look in verse 19. Acts 15, 19, James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So he gives four things. He says, my judgment is we should t tell them don't have anything to do with these four things. And then in verse 29, that's exactly what happens when, when the group makes a letter and sends it out to their Gentile brethren, they put those four things in. And so that's the reason I have Acts 15.20 and Acts 15.29. So it is notable that as they say that, they don't say that, that Gentiles now need to keep the dietary laws of the Jews. That's notable. They do not. There's no expectation that they're going to abstain from unclean animals and things like that. But there are some rules here. And the question is, well, are those rules just a compromise for that time as Jew and Gentile are coming together, or are those rules binding on all Christians for all time? So that's the question uh, that we're addressing right now. So I think it's pretty clear from this and from some of the things we talked about last month, as well as just a cursory reading of the New Testament, that food was a big deal in the New Testament era. There was a lot said about it, and it was a source of a lot of contention. And one of the reasons is that people enjoy being together while eating. We still do that, right? 
We, we, it's one of the easiest things to do to get to know someone or to have some fun together is we just get together and we eat together. But if you've got Jews and Gentiles who think one group thinks that the other group should not be eating what they're eating, then that meal is going to have a lot of tension to it. Instead of it being a happy occasion, it's going to be an occasion fraught with tension. So there are some rules about that that are important for the New Testament church to iron out. Now these rules in verse 15, Acts 15 verse 20 uh, a lot of them seem to have to do with the idolatrous background that, that the Gentiles come from. And I think that's the reason sexual immorality is involved in this. You see how he says abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, things have been strangled, and from blood. So three of those have to do with things you eat, and one of them, sexual immorality, seems to have nothing to do with any of that. I think that's the connecting line, is the idea. These are things that had to do with how they worshipped idols prior to becoming Christians. But... Really, what we're focused on are those diet rules. Are we making more rules for the diet? Uh, so uh, Skip alerted me to this fact um, that these four categories are actually four categories in Leviticus 17 and 18, okay, which is sometimes called the holiness code in the Old Testament. That is, it's in a little bit of different order. That is, the Leviticus 17 talks about sacrifices to goat demons, which would kind of correspond to the sacrifice to idols. And it talks about... Uh, eating blood, and it talks about things that have died on their own or are to torn by beasts, which I would equate with the things strangled here. And then in Leviticus 18, you have a long list of sexual immoralities and really defining what it means uh, to commit sexual immorality. So uh, Skip's point in mentioning that was a lot of the things in Leviticus 17 and 18 are bound on the stranger who lives with the Jews. So the, it's not just that the Jews have to keep these rules, but even the, the Gentiles who live in the land have to abstain from blood and all those other things. So uh, Skip surmised that maybe James is referring back to that to say, okay, Gentiles need to keep the rules that Gentiles have always kept uh, in making that harmony between Jew and Gentile. My main objection to that thought and the thought of these things being binding is the presence of one thing that is not like the others in my view. And that is, in verse 20, the idea of things polluted by idols, food sacrificed to idols. So let me take just a minute and talk to you about that, and then we'll kind of work through the rest of the list. First of all, I think we need to acknowledge that in the New Testament era, food sacrificed to idols was treated differently in that it's not wrong, but it's something you have to be very careful about. So leave your finger or your marker here. We'll come back to Acts 15. Uh, let's go over to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8. So I'm going to start by saying that food sacrificed to idols, according to Paul, is okay to eat. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And then drop down to verse 7, he says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really an offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul makes the point that 
you know, yes, an idol is not a real thing, so food sacrifice to it is not a thing. It's not a problem. It doesn't change the food. It doesn't somehow pollute the food. He is saying, no, it's fine. But not everybody understands that. Not everybody acknowledges that. So if somebody is troubled by that, particularly he, he mentions if you're eating in the idol temple and they see you, won't they be emboldened to do something they believe is wrong? So he says, it's not that this is wrong in itself. In fact, it doesn't even seem to me that he's condemning eating in an idol temple. He's saying, it's not that it's wrong in itself. It's about how your brother is viewing it and you are sinning against your brother. You're not sinning against God by eating this. You're sinning against your brother. He even goes on in 1 Corinthians 10 to talk about if somebody puts a plate of meat in front of you, don't even ask where it comes from. It's okay. Just eat it. But if they tell you, hey, this was sacrificed to an idol, then you might say, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't eat it because it's not that the thing itself is wrong, but it's about how this plays regarding other people and their consciences. So I say all that to say, to me, things sacrificed to idols are clearly something that are not wrong in themselves. It's not wrong to eat that, but it is instead pictured as be careful with this because you can uh, offend your brother. And I say offend here, not in the, oh, you hurt my feelings way, but offend in the, I'm going to go sin now because of what you've done way. So uh, this is also, by the way, described in Romans 14, although I think it's a different set of issues. I don't think it's meat sacrificed to idols as much as just the kosher laws and how they work with Jews and Gentiles. But Paul's conclusion is don't force your opinions on other people and don't cause them to stumble. That's his, his conclusion. So what I see in Acts 15 is sort of similar to those principles. The principles that there might be something that's okay for you to do, but in the interest of unity, give it up. And I think that may be the conclusion that James is coming to. All right, so let's go back to Acts 15. So Acts 15 verse 20 says to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality. Wow, well, um, that's a little different, isn't it? Sexual immorality is not one of those things that, hey, it's okay as long as you don't upset your brother about it, okay? It's wrong and it's wrong in every context and there's just no situation in which this is justifiable. So that's a very different kind of item, right? So you got one item where it's like you can take it or leave it and one item that is absolutely non-negotiable. And then you've got, uh, in verse 20, from what has been strangled and from blood. And this is really probably where this question is most um, curious and difficult, is the idea of things strangled and from blood. So we have clear statements about things sacrificed to idols, right? We just read some of them. We don't have clear statements about blood in the New Testament. We have clear statements about blood in the Old Testament, but they're right alongside some of those rules about clean and unclean animals. Now, it also goes back, I don't know if you remember last month, it also goes back to Noah and how after they got off the ark, they are told, don't eat the blood. Everything, they said, uh, God said to them, everything is food for you, but don't eat food with the blood. Okay, so this mostly has to do with the way meats were drained or not drained in Jewish cultures. After an animal was killed, did you drain the blood out? Jews were taught that the life was in the blood, and so if they see a Gentile eating food, eating meat with the blood in it, that would be deeply disturbing to them. So, uh, by the way, the thing strangled, I think, goes right alongside with that. I don't think that's a separate category. I think that's just talking about because it's strangled or it dies of itself, there might still be blood in it because it's not properly drained. But the good news about this is that the idea of eating blood is not really a problem in our time and in our culture. If you eat meat 
that is butchered in a modern slaughterhouse. It is thoroughly drained. In fact, I, I think it's important. I, I had to look into this. I always think when I preach a Q&A, boy, if somebody sees my Google search history, they're going to think, what is that guy doing? Okay, Because now my Google search history is full of, you know, steak and blood and all this stuff. Um, the, when you buy a steak, for example, and you see the red in the bottom, the red is not blood. Okay, And if you cook a steak and you cook it rare and you see some of the red juice, I, I, I like mine a little rare, and Josie was grossed out. The other day we were eating it. She's like, what is that? It's not blood that you're eating. Uh, that is, let me look, it's water and protein that leaches out of the meat. Okay, so it's almost completely empty of blood because that's the way our slaughterhouses butcher meat. They drain the blood. So it's impossible to completely remove every blood cell from meat, but there is a remarkably small amount of actual blood in the meat. So if you're worried about, oh, I, could, I eat my steaks too rare, I might be violating Acts 15.20, that's not a problem, at least not in America. All right? So seems to me there are only a couple of occasions where we might run into this in, in our time. One is if we kill our own game and we've got to think about how we're doing with the, the blood in that animal. And the other is when we eat products that are specifically made from blood. And I don't know if you've had that experience, but there are some, usually they're in other cultures, um, that are made specifically from blood. You've got different kinds of blood sausage in different cultures. Some of them that, that have, uh, I know, haggis and Scottish culture uh, and there's different kinds of uh, German sausages and things like that. Uh, and Skip mentioned to me something about the Philippines. They have dishes that are, that are made specifically with blood. Uh, but uh, it seems to me to be extremely rare and something that you kind of have to go out of your way to do in uh, modern times. So um, having said all that, I don't, I don't see the blood issue or obviously the thing sacrificed to idols issue as major modern issues. So... It seems to me, this is the way I interpret this question, that blood, you've got one category of things that are okay, but watch out, things sacrificed to idols. And then you've got one category of things, it's not okay, don't ever do it, sexual immorality. And then you've got blood, and you, I just wonder, do I put it over here, never do it, or do I put it over here, uh, it's okay, but watch out. So, does it trace back to Noah's time? You know, don't ever eat the blood. Or is it something that is more like food sacrifice to idols? Uh, don't let anybody judge you. Every creature created by God is good. Nothing's to be refused if it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So I guess here's the part where I have to tell you my opinion. This is my opinion. My opinion is that we have a liberty about it, but I prefer not to toy with it. It doesn't come up often. In fact, I have had the occasion where I have eaten things with blood in them. I've eaten blood uh, sausage in uh, Venezuela. Uh, I didn't really realize what was eating. I did not care for it. It was disgusting. But um, it's something that after the fact, I realized, you know what? That's getting closer to that line than I really want to be. Because, I mean, there's lots of good things to eat that I don't have to eat something that's disgusting. So uh, there's enough doubt in my mind about that interpretation to stay away from it altogether. Plus, it doesn't really come up that often in our culture. So I, I can't say definitively whether it's permanently binding or temporarily 
uh, a compromise. You know, Acts 15, is it permanent or is it a temporary compromise? I can't say definitively. I could see it both ways. But I would say this. I believe we need to find our own convictions about it. And the good news is that we don't really have a lot of pressure from our culture about it. So um, the other part, and I just want to say this because this is an echo of everything we've talked about in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. If our brother is grieved by our eating habits, how hard is it to change that? I mean, that's not a big sacrifice, right? There are so many things to eat. We have all kinds of options. If that's going to be a problem for us or for someone else, then let's, uh, let's be willing to change to, uh, to honor the conscience of our brother. All right, so that's my answer to Acts 15, 20, and 29. The answer is, essentially, I'm not sure, but make your own decisions and uh, do it with respect for your brother. All right, uh, second question, totally different direction. Uh, does honor your father and your mother apply only to children still in, that should be only, only to children still in their parents' household. What does it mean to honor as an adult or in an unhealthy relationship uh, with your parents? So let's go to Ephesians 6. So this is asking about uh, the command to honor father and mother and how that looks as we get into adulthood and if there's any change in that uh, between childhood and adulthood. Ephesians 6. Verse 1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. All right, so what I want to, to say on this question is that honoring father and mother is a lifelong responsibility, but that it looks different at different stages of life. So here, Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents and the Lord. Here, obedience is enjoined. And I do not believe obedience is a permanent state for a child. A child does not always obey their parents. But a child always, no matter how old the child is, always honors their parents. So you have obedience in verse 1, but then in verse 2, he says, honor your father and mother, which of course is one of the Ten Commandments. So in childhood, children are expected to obey their parents. There's lots of places where the, the scripture teaches that. You also see an example of like Jesus being subject to his parents in Luke chapter 2. Uh, but they're also intended to show them honor. In childhood, you have both obedience and honor together. And in fact, obedience would be a way they show honor at that stage in life. But, and this is the, the key part of the question, there comes a time when a child comes of age that a child is no longer expected to be obedient to a parent. And I want to show you why I say that. I want to look in Genesis chapter 2. I think that what happens in Genesis 2 is reflective of kind of a general principle that we all naturally understand, which is there comes a time when we become our own people and we're no longer subject to our parents in the same way, that our parents don't have the same say in our lives that they did previously. So Genesis chapter 2, this is where God creates woman from the man and gives her to the man, and he talks about marriage in this text as the two are joined together. Genesis 2 and verse 24, Genesis 2, 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God says a man shall leave his father and mother, leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife. So in place of a relationship that existed before, there's a new family, and that is described as leaving father and mother, and then being joined to wife. So a new family is formed here. That's part of the importance of the text. 
But the other part, and what's relevant to our question, is that parents no longer have the same say over the child. That's the idea of leaving, leaving father and mother, being joined to their wife. So if someone were to ask me, uh, does that still apply when you're not in your parents' home? This is the text I would go to and say, no, there comes a time when we leave and we're, we start a new family or we're in a new relationship to them. So in terms of obedience, that's what I would say. I would say there's a time where obedience is not the same, but the idea of honor is broader. And the New Testament, the way the New Testament talks about honoring parents is that it describes parents as having done a service for us when we were younger and we weren't able to take care of ourselves. Okay? In fact, Paul says specifically in 1 Timothy that we need to learn to repay our parents. Okay? They did something for us, and uh, we're in their debt. And so there is a humility to that relationship and an honor that says, you did something for me I could not do for myself. I honor you. I respect you. And in the New Testament, that means specific things. Honoring parents very often has to do with taking care of them as they age. And Jesus specifically criticizes the Pharisees in Matthew 15 because they refuse to take care of their parents because they say, well, what I would use, the money I would use, I've already given it to God. And they made up a rule about giving things to God that meant I don't have to take care of my parents because I'm all broke. I gave all my money to God. So honoring parents in Jesus' mind also means, not not obedience in this text, what it means is I'm going to take care of you because you've taken care of me. I'm going to watch out for you and meet my obligations to you. So honoring parents is something that is lifelong, and it's different from obedience. Honoring has specific outgrowths that are not about obedience. They're just about showing honor and taking care. All right, so in my opinion, what that looks like, this is just my opinion. I like to distinguish what's my opinion so you know when you can stop listening. But my opinion is that honor is reflected in how we talk to one another. We talked about respect last week. How we talk is speaking respectfully. When we talk about honoring our parents, that also means providing for their needs. It also means having a sense of gratitude. And it also means there being a bond that exists because of that relationship. Now, a couple of these other questions. What does it mean to honor as an adult? And what does it mean to honor in an unhealthy relationship? So there are times where adult children and their parents do not get along. Variety of reasons. I know we've all probably had experience with that, and we've probably all known people where the relationship really broke down. So personally, I think that sometimes we confuse honoring our parents with having a good relationship with them. Those are not the same thing. A good relationship is something that is constantly in flux. Okay? Just think about your relationships. Okay? We can still honor people that we don't have a good relationship with. And I want to say our honor for people, just like we talked about last week with respect, our honor for people is not due to any special character or characteristic that they have. It has to do with their role. We honor father and mother because they are father and mother, not because they are always a great father or mother, not because they always make great choices, but because of who they are. They are father and mother. Sometimes our parents make terrible decisions, whether those are moral decisions or decisions about how they uh, interact with us. Sometimes they do things that hurt us, but we can honor them. We can honor them. And I want to say we can honor them without necessarily 
doing something like trusting them in the same way we would have before or giving them the same type of dynamic or relationship that we would have had they not done what they've done. I can even honor my parents without being emotionally close to them. I can even honor my parents without regularly seeing them. And I'll just say, I mean, in case you're curious, I have had to live that and wrestle with those questions personally and figure out what does it mean to honor someone who doesn't do right to me and in general. And those questions are tough, but I have come to the conclusion that I still have an obligation to honor parents even when parents are not what they should be. And I think that's the, that's the distinction that we need to make here. There can be unhealthy relationships, but it doesn't really change the honor father-mother expectation. I'll, I'll say this about, um, the, the, usually when, I, and I have received questions like this before, and I have, as I mentioned, wrestled with them personally. Usually uh, these questions are challenging for people who are beginning to uh, be out of the house, for parents who are beginning to have children who are no longer at home, and how does that relationship, how does that transition work? Uh, parents very often give advice to their kids. We do that, I mean, we do that from the time they're born. You know, you just keep talking to them all the time. And we give advice to our kids even when our kids are adults. And I think it's important for adult children to respect and give credence to good advice at all times, particularly from their parents who care for them. But I think it's important to say good advice is fine, but our parents, when we have left father and mother and been joined to our wife or husband, our parents no longer have authority over us in the same way. So we listen to their advice, but we don't necessarily have to obey it. And I think it may be important for us to say, you don't have a role in this decision-making process. My other thought on this question, before I leave it, and I'm going to be out of time anyway. My other thought is, I want to recommend lots of patience in this process. Because as I mentioned, I've had people talk to me about this before, and it is a difficult thing for parents to adjust to having adult children. I can't even imagine, I know that's going to happen to me, uh, where what I'm used to giving advice and teaching and guiding, and suddenly I don't have the same role. My role changes as a parent, and that's hard. Very many new homes struggle with interference from in-laws. They just do we got to figure out how we're going to interact with our parents. Our parents have to figure out how they're going to interact with us. Feelings are hurt easily. In fact, uh, in, I haven't been doing this for too many years, but in the years I have been doing it, almost every couple I've encountered has had some kind of trouble with in-laws. Almost every one. And the ones that I don't know had it probably just didn't tell me about it. Uh, it's just a challenging thing. So I would counsel patients and forgiveness, because we're trying to work something out that's hard to work out. Instead of it being something where we feel like the relationship is forever tarnished, instead we've got to work and we've got to be patient with each other as we try to figure out a tough situation. So that's what I would have to say about that. Keep honoring your father and mother and uh, keep doing that in whatever way you can in the relationships you're in, but particularly with respect and uh, showing them the um, respect that they deserve and then taking care of them as they age. All right, I got another question. It's way too long for the next two minutes, so we'll just have to save that for next month. Uh, but I appreciate your attention, and we'll be dismissed for our classes at this time.